training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pendola Project. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Pendola Project. This is your host, Matt Pendola. Hello, Matt Pendola. I'm Jake Parker. This is episode 37 with the legendary in the studio, Bobby McGee. Matt, happy new year, by the way. This is quite a way to start out the new year. Bobby is quite an accomplished coach, Matt, and you're going to have more to say about this than I will, but basically he is a running coach of the highest pedigree. He also coaches triathletes. He's been involved in the Summer Olympics since 1996 coaching runners that have participated there he was the head coach for team usa's triathlon team for the summer of 2016 olympics in rio and the guy is just an absolute wizard when it comes to endurance sports yeah bobby has worked with olympic athletes he's been coaching for 40 years now which is pretty amazing in itself but he had athletes like Josiah Thungwain back in 1996 who came to Atlanta and won the Olympic gold medal in the marathon. That in itself is pretty amazing, but he didn't stop there. He has athletes like Colleen Daruk, who set a world record in the 10-mile, and, of course, Gwen Jurgensen, who brought home our first Olympic gold medal just back in Rio. Yeah, man, his accomplishments are just outstanding, and that's why it's so cool that you actually had him come to Reno to speak at your gym, Pendola Training, to your athletes. I hope these athletes can acknowledge how special of an event that is. Oh, yeah, they were pretty excited to work with Bobby. And, of course, I was lucky enough to get a phone call from Bobby years ago. I was training an athlete named Brandon Need. He was on the U.S. Olympic training team. And Bobby had called me because of some thoracic mobility work we had done with Brandon. He was interested in that process and what we had done for his mechanics, which had enabled Brandon to have a better time off the bike. So that was something that I was super excited about in the first place, to be able to work with an athlete like Brandon. But then on top of it, I got to work with Bobby and we've been good friends ever since. We were fast friends. We started to work together with other athletes and now we're even going into business together, which has been an amazing journey in itself. I just pinch myself. I can't believe that I get to do this with Bobby. Yeah, you guys are pretty kindred spirits. Even before we hit record on this podcast, you guys were chatting it up and you sounded pretty similar and you're on the same wavelength. So I thought that was interesting to listen to. Bobby's also just interesting to listen to because he's got a wicked accent. Yeah, he does. (laughs) You have to enjoy his accent. If you don't enjoy his accent, then I just think there's something wrong with you. Yeah, can't help you because it's pretty cool. Yeah, and so my athletes had a lot of good questions for him this weekend. We went over a lot of mindset. Of course, he wrote the book Magical Running, which I think is a great read, even if you're not a runner, just about better mindset and preparing yourself for better success. But it is geared for the runners out there, and my runners all read his book. That was almost required reading, Jake, right? If you're going to be taught by Bobby, you better have read his book. Probably a good idea. Right. So we we did that. We also went through mechanics. So we did a lot of skill drills over the weekend. And what was so cool about it is 
every athlete's a little bit different. And Bobby was able to really understand various athletes that he had just met that day and really break down very quickly what it is that he felt they needed to work on to improve their skill sets, which that's just 40 years of experience, man. You just can't fake that. It's just absolutely unbelievable to me how quickly he was able to help these athletes. And that's a lot of time and training and experience on his part. But there's many coaches who spend 40 years that cannot do it the way that he does it. And I think that's because he serves his athletes and that's what it comes down to. It's 40 years experience of not being an average coach, which we've talked about in previous podcasts, like episode 33 about coaching principles. He knows the individualization process. He knows that each athlete is unique and they are going to respond differently to different stimulus. So just listening while we were recording this, Matt, I can tell Bobby McGee is a guy you want to hear. Yeah, Bobby is somebody who's very willing to share everything that he knows in hopes that that will help other people. He wants other coaches to know what he knows. He doesn't want to hoard the information that's been so hard for him to understand and learn and verify himself. He wants to share that with me so I can help my athletes more. So it's just really inspiring to be around somebody like this. And I know that listeners will get so much out of this. And now we get to share it with you. Episode 37 with Bobby McGee. Oh yeah, we're back. This is the Pandola Project, your process to success, episode 37 and in the studio. What a way to start the year, Matt. Happy New Year, by the way, to both of you, because this is coming out January 1st. And we've got Bobby McGee, the legend himself. Matt, our audience has heard you talk about him. Bobby, thank you so much for coming into the studio. Your reputation precedes you. Ah, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, this is an honor, man. So, Matt, can you give us a quick recap? What's Bobby doing here, and uh, how is he helping you out at the gym? Well, first of all, you sound a little extra peppy today, Jake. What's going on? Yeah, I'm excited, man. 2020 is going to be awesome. You've convinced yourself that 2020 is going to be your year. This is my year, man. I say that every year, but again, this is my year, just like last year. <laughs> right. And it always works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm super excited because Bobby has been here working with our athletes over this last weekend. And Bobby is a game changer when it comes to helping my athletes achieve better success, both mentally and physically. And Bobby, your background is very, very unique. But I know, for example, you grew up in South Africa during the apartheid. Maybe tell the audience a little bit about that, what that experience was like. You know, it's it's not something that you have distinguished for many years until apartheid is over. So the, you know, the propaganda is so complete, you know, some people in South Africa, you know, I'd probably call it almost the English speaking part of the community were more focused on, on the wrongs of apartheid being, you know, reasonably a political person. I'm just rolling along and playing my sport, et cetera, et cetera. And I only really became aware of things when I was in the military and I started thinking, oh, wait a minute, this, this, is, this is messed up, you know. But still, you know, seeing, you know, certain of my more progressive friends, you know, getting into trouble, maybe not, not showing up after a while, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you just, just want to have to be careful. And it was only really 
when I started coaching elite athletes, that I started, you know, coaching athletes of color, that I realized that, oh, this is a big problem. You know, we knew apartheid kept us out of world sport. We knew the sports embargo was there, et cetera, et cetera. But it was business as usual. It was your life. So it was undistinguished, you know. And I think over the years, you, you get it more and more distinguished as time comes. And, you know, you deal with that guilt that I do enough. Was I, you know, enough a part of the conversation? So I think some of the stuff that I was proudest of were those years where we transitioned, you know. In, in 92, when we were allowed back into world athletics, we had to pass a test in Dakar at the African Championships. And then we had to, obviously, the first Olympics we went back to was, was Barcelona in 92. And, you know, so it was a lot of Time Magazine and Newsweek and stuff like that. And there were situations with that first Olympic team where, you know, where the ugly head of apartheid reared its head a couple of times that could have become international incidents because we were so much in the news there, you know. Yeah, I, th- I think it's still something that that's there every day, you know. I wouldn't never call it that, you know. My experience would never be a reverse of that. But I had some experiences where I was coaching athletes and wearing the great coat and wearing the little beanie outside the stadium fence at night, making sure that nobody could see that I was white so that I could coach these athletes. And so there were two organizations at that time. You know, the one was called SACOS and SACOS, their main motto was no normal sport in an abnormal society. You know, and so they were only people of color. And then I was coaching for the SAAAU, which was the South African Athletics Union, which was, a, you know, a lily white organization. So at that point in time, as I said, I was privileged to be part of that process where we started transitioning. You know, and I remember one story. We were in a restaurant where we were the coaches from both sides were meeting, as it were, and to discuss the way forward, you know. And a gentleman came over and introduced himself to me and introduced himself as a member of Mkonto Wisizwe, which at that time was the military wing of the ANC. And I was going, I must be at the wrong meeting because I really want to talk about intervals and how, you know. <laughs> and But it turned out that that gentleman was, was married to a gal that I helped him coach and she ended up uh, being a very good comrades marathon runner as well so you know it's, it's just a wonderful story that you're sitting in places and you're talking about athletics but there's something in the back of your mind that says just be aware because you know this could turn into something beyond <laughs> just track and field you know so it, uh, those were interesting years indeed yeah and you as a coach you were able to learn maybe a little bit more because other coaches you explained to me one time didn't necessarily see you as a threat because you weren't going to travel outside of the country maybe and they were willing to teach you more about what they knew actually we we, in 1986 i remember a friend of mine who's a sprint coach piet him and i went traveling at the expense of our state coaches association they they foot the bill for us to go and tour through europe and I remember just setting up Frank Horwell, setting up Harry Wilson, uh, setting up Walter Gladrow, uh, setting up Conconi, but in the end I didn't get to, to, to talk to them, Charles Elliott, all these great distance coaches that were producing world-leading athletes, and they were going, yeah, sure, we'll talk to you. Uh, Bruce Tuller was another one. So we learned all this information, and they, you know, they, they were there was no international competition feeling with these guys that they should guard their secrets because, you know, we were never going to compete against them. So it was it was very interesting time. Yeah, I learned a lot from that trip. You know, especially 
Yeah, from, from the English coaches and then from the German coaches. You know, I like the German approach to the juniors. They had this kind of pentathlon approach. So I think up to age 17, you couldn't specialize in an event. You had to do a throw, you had to do a jump, you had to do a sprint, and you could do your specialist event, you know, something like that. And only after age 17 or something like that could you start specializing in your event. And I thought that was a great idea and a great system. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's some silver linings anyways that uh, came out of that, right? And so going forward, how did you become a coach in the U.S.? Am I skipping too many years here? How did this happen? Yeah, I mean, you are skipping some years as how did I go from being a high school coach or how did I going from being a, a phys ed student to being a, a high school coach to being, you know, a, a national class coach in South Africa? But, I mean, we can always jump around. I have no problem. So in the U.S., uh, when apartheid ended, you know, I was the unofficial South African coach for the South African marathon team to Barcelona. Okay. And I was working at that time for an agent who had 55 athletes under his wing, anything from 400 meter hurdlers up to marathon runners. And so my job was initially preparing these athletes and handling their travel arrangements and stuff back in South Africa and then travel with them abroad to these races, mostly road races and marathons. So, you know, in that time, traveling around, getting to meet all the U.S. people on the U.S. road running circuit. So we did all that wonderful circuit. Those days, uh, Delta Airlines had something called the Delta Pass. So if you exited another country to come to the U.S. and paid an extra $300, I think, you got six weeks of standby flights for free within the continental U.S., so it was great. You could just go anywhere every weekend, just go another race. You're just always on standby, but it was wonderful. But in that time, you know, you start to meet the other athletes on the circuit. And so slowly but surely, I started coaching U.S. athletes at that time. Okay. So what about, Bobby, when you talk about U.S. athletes, and we've had these conversations, but I'd love for people listening in to get your perspective on U.S. athletes and coaches versus, let's say, the Kenyans that we're always hearing about. What's the big difference in their road to success versus ours? You know, at that time when I started coming over to the U.S. post-1992, I already started picking up that distinction, although I only started with the triathlon in all seriousness in 2002 with USA Triathlon when I started doing coach education and helping them with, with the elites on the, on the run side. But I think the biggest distinction was for me that the American collegiate swimming system worked because the environment in which they put all these millions of kids through was a pristine environment you know controlled temperature in the pools it's non-impact this that and the other and that very same approach wasn't working in track and field so the athletes were burning out they were getting injured uh, and that kind of thing and I remember working with some athletes who you know just basically asked me questions and consulted with me and saying you know what's missing and you always look at the background, you know, who came from a volume background or who came from an intensity background. And like we've been speaking so much about recently is, you know, some athletes were high octane athletes in distance based programs and were failing and vice versa. You had some high diesel athletes, but they were in, in very high intensity, you know, approach programs and also failing. And, and mostly what I would give to these athletes was balance. Let's describe diesel and high octane for our listeners too, Bobby. Yeah. And, and again, it's a spectrum. It's a gray zone, right? Not everybody's there. But I think initially it would refer to the athlete that you have as an endurance athlete. 
but the high octane athlete tends more towards being quicker, maybe even more athletic, and having uh, you know a greater distribution of say fast twitch fibers that that contribute to distance running, whereas the diesel can tolerate a lot of mileage doesn't do so well with a high intensity approach and doesn't like a big taper coming into a race you know needs to just roll right through the race for them not to lose feel and not to lose form and not to lose conditioning so you know all athletes resort between those two so you'll have some athletes that say will run 212 for the marathon but cannot even do one quality workout but they can run 125 miles a week you know non-stop and perform really really well I had an athlete go fourth or fifth in London uh, in South Africa. He was a diesel. His name was Tabiso Mukadi. And Tabiso, you know, was a 209 runner, yeah, and, you know, would run like a 104 half marathon on the weekends, but no training of his ever came close to 104 half marathon pace. It was all slower than that, but he was able to run that fast. You know, and then other athletes that were capable of doing these incredibly fast interval workouts but you give them a 90 minute run and they take five days to recover and I was lucky early on in my career when I started coaching elite athletes to have two guys that were at the same space for 800 meters the one ran 145.5 and the other one ran uh, 146.2 so they were very very similar athletes but the one could run the 100 in a shade under 11 and the other one had a hard time breaking like 13 seconds, 12 seconds for 100, you know. And then the diesel could go, you know, for a 90-minute run and float through the half marathon in 110 in a training run on the dirt, you know. And the, and the other one could only run 346 for 1500 whilst the, the diesel ran, you know, 333 for 1500. So much more reach at the top. And the high octane, you could go 47 for a quarter, and the other boy, you know, maybe went 49.9999 for 400 meters. But they met in the middle at 800. But if I coached them the same way, one of them would have failed absolutely. Right. You know, so that's a, a good description of how that worked. And as I said, it was luck that I got those two athletes. You know, they both came from that same organization. And the one had been in the organization longer and the other one had been a tennis player. And, uh, you know, so I had more access to the tennis player than I had to the other guy for a couple of years before things started to smooth out. Right. And let's talk a little bit about, for example, you told me one time when I was describing my run career to you and I said, I ran for so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And you stopped me right there and you said, you know, Matt, you didn't run for them. You were, mm -hmm. you were running for yourself, right? Yep, yep. But describe a little bit more, what is your philosophy as a coach and how you're serving your athletes and why are they running for themselves versus a coach or an organization? Yeah, this, this is amazing how long this conversation is because one of my coach mentors who just passed away is a gentleman by the name of Via Mostet, and we used to call him Wimosi, which means Uncle Mossi. And he said to me, you know, never say we, because you you could not move your ass around a track that fast, no matter how hard you tried. So it's them that does it. And you, are, you know, you guide, you lead, you prescribe, you know, you do all those other things, but you, you can never say we ran a sub four minute mile, you know, because you weren't even close, <laughs> you know, not even at, in your best days. It was, a, it was a very good lesson that I learned from him. And it was very interesting that just recently, uh, guy by the name of, I hope I get his name right, Claudio Berescal, did a, a research project where he looked at 
he did a study called the characteristics of serial winning coaches and the number one principle of serial winning coaches is that the athlete is the compass Mm -hmm. so it's all about the athlete which is the same thing right it's not we it's you and i work for you and i serve you and together collaboratively we find ways for you to be the best you can be right is this approach going to serve the athlete exactly if there's some sort of you know there's there's often talk in the nba about this the type of coaches that are looking for their own fame through what they're doing they're still doing a good job but some part of their thinking is i want to become famous as a great basketball coach whereas other coaches are if i put together this team to be the best they can be they can win the nba you know and oh, by the way, you became very well-known, Phil Jackson, but you never tried to become very well-known. So th- that kind of approach, you know. So it's th- the whole concept about absolute drive to win at all costs. That doesn't go away. What goes away is, is where's the focus? And the focus is a humanistic approach and taking care of the athlete, and the athlete guides the way. You know what I learned in that regard. Yeah, so bringing it back to the u.s and your coaching here just earlier today you were i think you mentioned to me you had 18 i believe it was high school boys who broke 150 for the 800 is that correct no no not high school boys just elite athletes elite athletes okay but that's that's a that's a lot of athletes under 150 for an 800 yeah and remember this is when the world record was only about I think it was just at the beginning of the co-ovet of chasing that record down. I mean, you know, I was still around when Marcello Fiascanaro held the world record for Italy, and he was actually a South African, um, but, you know, he had uh, parentage in out of Italy. And the, and the world record was only 144, you right. know. So when, when, when a guy was running 149, 148, he was pretty good. And, and there were less sub-four-minute milers. I think there were five or six of them. But still, you know... It, I find the 800 was interesting because that was the era where the 800 was starting to become distinguished. Remember, we had the world record broken in the Olympics uh, by El Caballo, the horse, you know, uh, Alberto Juantarina from Cuba. Right. And that was like one of the first 800s when he ran in the heats in the 800 in, was it 72 or 76? I think 72. When he ran in the heats in the 800, that was like his third 800 in his life, <laughs> you know, and then he became the world record holder for the 800 meters. And that was beginning when, you know, Co and Ovette were 800, 1500 meter specialists, not a lot of them around anymore, you know, so it's, it's definitely a 400 up event rather than a 1500 down event, you know, so coaching the eight is quite unique because i wouldn't even call it a middle distance anymore and i think the dividing line is it's the only sort of distance race middle distance race which always goes to a positive split almost always you know the guys run way faster the first lap than the second lap yeah i think 19 out of 20 of the world records were set with a positive split. exactly you know exactly so so even when rudisha went so fast in london and set the world record and almost broke 141 he ran the fastest third 200 anybody's ever ran, but it was still slower than the first 200 or the second 200, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So uh, 
you know, the A tunnel was a fascinating event to me, but it it's starting to go towards the realm of sprinters, you know, that sprinters need to be incredibly well trained to achieve that level of success, but they are born. Yeah. You know, whereas, uh, you know, I think 800 meter runners are born, you know, and, and I experience this quite a lot now that I work in triathlon is that we get these 800 boys coming up, but they just can't transition to 1500 and 5000, whereas the 15 gun, 1500 meter guys always can. It takes a bit of time, but if you've got a 1500 meter specialist, they can always go up to 5 and 10K. So, Bobby, this is all very interesting. I'm sure people are probably wondering, though, with all of your experience with these top-level athletes, maybe talk about what athletes you've trained in the past that have achieved, you know, higher levels of success, but also what does it take to get there? You know, that uh, that typing, right, that athlete typing scenario that we've talked about a little bit this weekend, what does it really take for that type of athlete, what kind of attributes they have, but also what kind of decisions they have to make in their life. There's a lot of sacrifice, right? Yeah. So, so full disclosure, you know, when I left South Africa, one of the newspaper articles that showed up in South Africa was top coach leaves for the U.S. to coach coaches. And I sometimes feel that, you know, that, that my legacy in terms of athletes is getting a little old now, you know. So I have a lot of involvement with current athletes at very high levels of performance, but I'm not the primary coach. You know, I might be the coach advisor, I might be the mentor, I might be whatever. So, you know, th- th- I think that's, that's something that I have to say at this point in time. But to go back to your question, Noakes always said to me, if you want to be a better athlete, you've got to go back and re-choose your parents. You know, so I, I still think that in track and field, there's that one factor. But another factor that's very interesting is, is you can look through the really great distance runners and you cannot really find any that became megastars without horrifically hard childhoods growing up really, really hard. So their definition of tough times when they are training is much lower. You know, so you look at the whole Iron Man, the birth of Iron Man, you look at that whole concept and it's tough and it's big guys and it's really, really strong, you know, whereas I think that that misleads some people, you know, it's it's people that have that that tenacity. So South African athletes, the ones that I knew intimately well and some Kenyans, they would never actually be very eloquent around how hard it was and how tough it was and how much they suffered during their training they would have much more of a of a mindset of oh that's just what it takes you know if i've got to have you know 20 millimoles of lactate well that's just what it takes it's just the cost of doing business you know that's that's how i make my money just like anybody else is digging in coal out of a mine i go out there and i and i put myself under intense physiological pressure but they don't ever used labels like painful and so on. I mean, even if you look at the eloquence of Elliot Kipchoge, he speaks so beautifully about commitment and that, but he never talks really much about deep suffering in training workouts and stuff like that. Whereas that's a very Western stock in trade kind of thing. You know, look how much I can endure. And I think that holds people back. You know, it's just like... Gwen said after she won the Olympics in Rio, she got up and she stayed stage and she said, my coach taught me that there are no sacrifices. It's just what are you willing to do to get what you want? 
you know, so if, if the process is, is that's what I want and this is what it costs, that's not a sacrifice. That's an investment. You know, so I love that approach. Yeah, I have never heard it that way. No, yeah. that's really interesting because it's almost like you're playing this trick, at least from my American perspective, whereas I would view it as suffering. But you're not saying that they take it that way. They're taking this positive spin on it. And that's probably going to elicit such more of a positive result in the end because you don't have this, oh, this is terrible mentality while yeah. you're going through it. If your set point is maybe lower than, you know, mine was living a, an American privileged life and if these other people had way worse circumstances then that's just business as usual to yeah. them that's amazing and I don't even think that's a positive spin yeah. that, that's an is what it is spin realist you know compared to what I mean, yeah. exactly yeah. yeah what's your set point and how do you see things they just see things a little differently than most of us do yeah most, yeah, most of us ordinary people do, right? But what if yeah, for somebody example, always gets up at five in the morning? Yeah, you know, it's very different to somebody that always got up at seven and now starts to get up at five. That's much harder. Right. But if you've only known five a.m., it's just what it is, you know. <laughs> and it's it's a very powerful concept, and it gets back to that Nassim Taleb thing that we spoke about is is anti fragility as opposed to robustness or resilience it's a very different thing anti-fragility is uh, these are the circumstances whereas robustness is, is look how tough am i you know that i can handle this that's a that's a very different approach so you're a parent i'm a parent one of the things that i struggle with and i'd love to get your perspective on this but I know that I didn't have it as hard as others, but I still had it hard enough where I had to callous and toughen up. And um, I feel like that probably did help serve me when it came to being a better endurance athlete. But what about my daughter? What about your kids? Are they just never going to be great endurance athletes because they don't have it as hard or it's not as tough of a life? It's a very good question. So now the the waters start to get muddied, right? It gets gray. Because I think that a lot of modern kids, all right, have it way harder than we do in terms of pressure to go to a different place beyond. And so the expectations that they set upon themselves create pressure in and of themselves. You know, you see what's happening at schools with, with kids that want to be as successful. There's, there's, a, there's a, a whole different kind of pressure, right? But I think to get back more to what you're saying in terms of that kind of suffering. So, you know, the Kenyan suffering or the African suffering is, you know, getting up early in the morning, five miles to school, five miles back, 10 miles to school, 10 miles back, walking, then running because you're late, et cetera, et cetera. Um, very simple diets, living at altitude, uh, a mindset that, you know, you become a hero. It's just like being in Nepal, right? When, where, how do you become a hero in Nepal? You, you go to live to 110 years old. You're an elder. You, you're admired because you're 110. So it, it, it all depends culturally, you know, and that's what I said to you yesterday. This counterculture that these kids created their own community in the U.S., and if you look at the top distance runners and the ones that, that broke through, they were pioneers because they chose communities that were initially frowned on, 
You know, you weren't good enough to play basketball, so you went off to running and you did a good job of it. But now kids are aspiring to become a good runner. I know I've digressed a little bit, but that concept of is I think there's still a lot of hardship. But I think the nature of their upbringing creates mental tenacity still today, but physical tenacity is missing. So the tree climbing is disappearing. The barefoot running down the street, the playing football barefoot, um, those things are becoming a problem. And then, of course, there's all the modern problems that they're addressing now. It's clearly we have a massive challenge with early specialization. Oh, yeah. You know, kids, you know, and you look at sports like cycling and running that are late specialization sports and the parents putting them in early. You know, so I, I think that, that that's much more of a problem. But I think the opportunities to suffer <laughs> while you're growing up are almost still the same. They're just not physical suffering. It's mental, emotional suffering, which might be where the answer lies anyway. So if you suffer mentally, emotionally growing up, you can become bloody minded and determined just as much as if you got physically beaten up while you were growing up. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah, and we talked a lot about specialization, but to tap into that a little bit more, because this is such a hot topic, something that I'm constantly dealing with in my facility too. At what age do you think it would be okay to start to specialize in, let's say, for running or triathlon? Um, well, Firstly, triathlon is a second-stage sport, and it's interesting that that's part of my job now as a development coordinator for USA Triathlon is, is when do you actually want them to specialize because they have to become masters of the water. And we know in the swim, for example, you develop feel for the water being in a disciplined squad of swimmers from age 8, you know, 8, 9, 10, no, no later than that. You know, so but but the distinction that needs to be made is is training and learning to train and learning the discipline to train versus actually training are two different things. So you need a very clever coach with an eight year old that teaches them discipline, teaches them the stroke and the skill and the feel for water, but doesn't load them that it becomes an, a mental emotional problem for them later on, whether the last thing they want to do after college or after high school is ever, ever see a pool again because they're just sick of it, you know. Um, and then you look at something like cycling where it's clearly a late development sport. You don't want to be doing miles and miles and miles in, an, you know, in a compromised postural position when you're 10, 12 years old. But you damn well better learn how to ride a bike and not be afraid of beating down a hill and taking a negative camber down at the bottom and both flying off your bike and you know, rolling up in a heap in the dirt. So you need the skills and you need that kind of exciting adrenaline kind of junky mindset that you like the speed with that because we see this all the time now you get kids that have the big motor and they come to cycling from running and it's just all too fast and too scary and it can be limiting you know so it's early stage skill sport late stage development sport but this is unique to triathlon and similarly in triathlon you better start a little bit of formalized run training by the time you're 14 you know 13, 14, maybe 13 for the girls, you know, to be able to become the runner that you can become because that is a is a specific skill. That fourth gate we, we always speak about, right? right? Everybody can walk, everybody can canter, and everybody can gallop in some way, shape, or form, but not everybody can trot. And that's the basis. So that's, that's another skill that you need to learn. So they need to start running early, but you want them to be almost the best swimmers they can be and the best 
runners they can be in terms of function before they come to triathlon because now suddenly they've they become mongrels right because they're never going to be the best at all three ever again right they're going to be best at all three at the same time but they're never going to be the best swimmer they can be or the best biker they can be or the best runner they can be although history is rife with people that were in running programs that were maybe not the best for them and then came to triathlon did a third of the work and became much much better runners than their time showed but that doesn't speak to their overall potential Right. No, that makes sense. So, Jake, when you're hearing Bobby talk, first of all, it's so nice to hear Bobby's perspective on training these athletes because I know you were a trainer for a long time mm-hmm. with high school athletes, and we dealt with kids that were overtraining and specializing far too young, far too soon. So, the, with the parents that are out there listening, or even kids that are, might be listening, what kind of advice can we give them? Jake, what would you say for our kids out there, our parents out there listening, what kind of advice would you give early specialization or doing multiple sports, for example? Well, first, I would say listen to your coach when you get a second opinion because often the sport coaches would be telling them you know okay you're you're a volleyball player you need strong legs we're doing lots of squats right that is okay we can talk about that the difference though is that when they come into a facility like yours where i used to work matt and then they wouldn't want to hear what i would do to counteract what their sport coach was doing right so it's so you're describing by the way um cyclical loading in sport versus mechanical loading in the gym is what jake's talking about right. here in order to serve the athletes so they can not only get better at their sport but also reduce the risk of injuries right which is hard for some parents to understand when all they know is what their sport coach is constantly telling them so i mean bobby you'd probably have a lot more input about that because you've coached in different you know technically different sports and triathlon being a combination of three correct yeah i i I kind of in my mind my overall thirty thousand foot view when i'm working with athletes is a little bit more esoteric so if i'm working with anybody who's you know younger than say 24 25 26 years old i try to force myself into the mindset of i am working with a 26 year old becoming Hmm. Uh, and i think the distinction perhaps in the u.s that is problematic is two things is one is at every level of coaching there is an expectation of that coach to achieve championship results within that framework yeah very high pressure to do so exactly so very few uh coaches see themselves as uh developmental coaches very few people see themselves as i'm working with this athlete so that this athlete long after they've left me will be the best athlete they could ever have been i've got to get them good now and i don't really care what happens after they leave me right because that doesn't reflect on my program or the demands that are there for me Uh, and i think organizations like the usopc with their coach uh, coach frameworks are starting to realize that where they they're guiding coaches to be able to achieve satisfaction uh, within their process intrinsically and know what their role is and i think that we have done sport and athletes a disservice by not creating that culture so you know where i grew up is is i knew a whole lot of junior coaches that ended up coaching athletes that became olympic medalists and became olympic athletes 
But they never had an aspiration to take that athlete to the Olympics. They had an aspiration to deliver that athlete so that they would have their best chance to become an Olympic athlete. Because they saw that that was their job at exactly. the time. And they weren't so concerned with their careers that they had their career aspirations in mind over the athlete's health and overall success. Precisely. So whilst having a, an Olympic medalist as part of your legacy or your portfolio is beyond belief and very, mm -hmm. very exciting. I think I get more out of kick out of a kid who's 50 now or 40 now and calls me up and said, you were the most important influence in my life in high school. Or I still run today. I'm running marathons. I love the sport and you gave that to me. You know, I think that's so much more important than than even that and if in that process you get the you get the gold medals oh that's really really cool but i think you know for every gold medal that you get you have to touch you know thousands of souls and you better do a good, good job with those thousands of souls because that's where you're going to be held accountable in I, the end. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I totally agree. And I think that's like a kind of a holistic approach that will yield the type of results that the other approach wants but is working way too hard to get. Yes, yes, I think so. And, 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 and I think it just becomes myopic. And when you become myopic, you miss so much you, you miss the the real picture mm -hmm. you know you think okay i have to deliver the right type of intervals for this kid to get to the top yeah and it's always the other way around because every athlete that comes back from the game said i wish i worked more on my mental skills i wish i worked more on my emotional control because those were the things you know i got there and there were 10 guys with no better skills than me and no worse skills than me so it was going to come down to you know who had put it together and how did you put it together well the 18 years of development that i had to this point you know you know um that reminds me of something that another one of your athletes that we had on a while back now this was episode 27 matt with kathleen doswell she mentioned something that you had taught her and it was to do with the recovery part of training yep, that yep. you don't get a whole lot of word about and that's another thing matt that i experienced in your gym was trying to explain to parents especially about how important the recovery process is and okay why why isn't she sore well because now's not the time for that um kathleen mentioned one of your mantras is recover hard yeah, yeah. I, I love that because it gets the point across that a recovery is important and then B it also adds that kind of intensity that I think a lot of athletes and parents are looking for. Yeah, in my first book, uh, Magical Running, uh, my opening quote is a quote from music and I don't even know if it was Bach or Beethoven or somebody who said it's not the notes that make music, it's the spaces between the notes. And it made complete sense in endurance for me to t take that quote and say, it's not the training, all right? It's the spaces between the training, which, which is the recovery. And, you know, you could go to uh, base baseball coaching, batting coaching, and the coach will show you something and you'll immediately start tagging the ball better. But that never happens in endurance coaching, right? Right. So in endurance coaching is right after your hardest workout, you are the worst athlete you can possibly be at that point in time. So it is that inculcation phase and this deep knowledge of the inculcation phase to bring about the best performance. And that's about the recovery, whether that's mental or emotional or physical recovery. Yeah, and that's a great way of putting it. And I hope that people hear that message. Yeah, well, work plus rest equals success. That's 
literally what we have in the gym that's been engraved, right? But this is oftentimes, Jake brought up a really important point, I think, with what parents, for example, expect when they're paying X amount a month for their kid to train with us. And they say, well, why isn't she sore? You know, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. that's what she's, isn't she supposed to get sore if she's going to make progress, right? And, you know, on that note, what you said is so crucial and beneficial for people to really understand in that when we have all these high school athletes that are winning Foot Locker, winning big uh, Arcadia invite, you know, all these kind of big in- invitationals that you have to be at the very, very top. But unfortunately, that usually means the athlete is doing 80 mile weeks, 90 mile weeks. I've heard of 100 mile weeks with a lot of these kids in high school. And yet you never hear about them later on. And so this is where I feel like we're losing a lot of our potential. Um, Success is relative, but I think that a lot of these athletes, cream rises to the top if you have the attributes, but I feel like sometimes we're more concerned with what these athletes are doing for so-and-so getting back to the, I run for this program, this coach, and this looks really good because this coach has trained me to win a state or national title, but then what happens after that? And that's where I think we've run into problems in the U.S. as far as looking at more of that short-term scope versus the long-term view. Yeah, you know, we can fetch this in different ways, but it's interesting when, when you just measure athletes' glucose levels mm-hmm. and you pay attention to their nutrition in their home environment. And then when you go overseas with that same athlete and you source exactly the same nutrients, the athlete's blood glucose levels are different, even though they have the same nutrients. And that's because of the environment and because where that food was sourced from, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you can use that exact same analogy. You know, there's some generations of, say, Foot Locker winners like Dathan Ritzenheim and, and that crowd that went on to become great, great elite athletes, you know, in and of their own right. But that, that analogy of how you cook it, right, and how some, ki- you know, some kids are very different in terms of what they can handle. So let's, let's say you have a, that kind of athlete that has beautiful mechanics, has a great mindset, doesn't accept training with this deep level of gra- gravity and this is really hard and I'm a really tough individual, but it's kind of lighthearted about it and does other things and runs really well. But 80 miles don't impact that athlete like it would most athletes. You see, that's the thing. And then, of course, that two-dimensional thing where, where you know coaches go out and say, there's got to be a recipe. I was the same the first four years of coaching. It's like, what did you do to get that athlete there? I've just got to do exactly that. And then I can get a whole bunch of athletes there as well. Right. You know, never thinking like, okay, how many athletes did that coach do that to before we got that one, you know? So, you know, that, that whole approach, I'll never forget. And that's the, that's the nature of our job. And that's, that's what we have to do. That's what we are tasked to do. I'll never forget NBC doing a presentation in the lead up or right during the, the Rio Olympic Games and then blaming all this thing that firstly they label it pain and there's ability to endure and they blamed it all on lactic acid, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, you know, great. When it just put, been put 40 years back in sports science because of the millions of people that are listening to this thing. And, you know, we, we've been painfully teaching people, no, lactate is not the enemy. <laughs> you know, it's the substrate that we're looking for. You know, we could eat it with teaspoons. It would help us if we drank. 
<laughs> anyway, so that whole thing is, is we will just have to compete, uh, continue just repeating ourselves, repeating ourselves, repeating ourselves that every single athlete is an experiment of one. And what comes first is health and well-being, you know, and work from there. You know, so many times we work with an athlete, there's all the potential in the world and they're not interested. You know, they're not interested. They actually just want to belong to this clan or this squad because everybody's having a good time and they kind of naturally good at it. But they don't see the same vision as you. So you've got to give them the vision and then they've got to choose. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. that's so well said. All right. So, Bobby, you had an interesting weekend with my athletes. You had a lot of fun with them. Of course, I know they really appreciated being able to work with you this weekend. But these athletes, whether they're younger or my older executive athletes, they're up-and-coming athletes. And so my question to you would be, what do you see, what common things are you seeing with athletes that want to be better versions of themselves, but really maybe don't know exactly what they should do to get there? Yeah, hard for me to say, but I learned in my 60s what the saying patience is its own reward really means. It took me that long to learn what that statement means. So... You know, in terms of the group that we worked with and in terms of any approach that you take like that, it's, it's all about the layers of the onion, right? So you, you look at from your expert perspective at the one thing that you are looking at. In our case, we were looking at what are the limitations? Are there, you know, are there physiological limitations or are there mechanical limitations? And I think that's a, an important distinction. But what are the 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 first limits the lowest hanging fruit that you need to address first and then teach the patients and just say look i can see what we need to work on but before that there's something else that you need to work on before you will be able to work on that you know so firstly getting that distinction that running is a first language you did not learn it in your brain in the same place where you learned a second language like swimming or riding a bike or playing tennis or whatever the case might be you know so the approach to get to those places is to demystify cognitive intervention you don't need to understand this you need to feel it and you need to be able to distinguish what you feel versus what you see on the video you know, and so that that whole approach is is like the thing that's holding you back is what you think about the things that are holding you back, not the things that are holding you back. You know, it's 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 your paradigm around those things. And that's why I studied to be a coach. And 40 years later, I'm still bloody well coaching because that is an endlessly satisfying, cyclically continuing conversation you know every year is well i've been a dumbass for 49 years you know i should have done it this way you know if i had that athlete again i would have done this so just the acceptance of that that's how it's going to be you're gonna you know sometimes i work with an athlete and i follow all of the principles don't move their arm don't change where their arm is there's there's multiple reasons why their arm is there and then three weeks later damn it Put your arm here and everything works. You go, oh, geez. You know, <laughs> I overthought this whole thing in the first place, you know. So it is so eclectic and so organic, you know. And even looking at every day, where was I today as a coach that caused me to take so long to fix this 
versus when I fixed it with so-and-so, it only took me this long to fix it, you know. So you, you've got to take respons- responsibility for both sides. And I've learned in the last couple of years the very important thing is, nope, that's not the right way to do it. I know I've been telling you that for three months, but that's wrong. It's not working. We've got to go somewhere else or to someone else. Be okay with that, you know, that, that approach. So, again, with these athletes, they sponges. Uh, the first thing I see with them, not being elites, is their physical IQ is a little lower. They take a longer time. You do have to do more modeling. You have to be more patient with explaining it to them. They want to fix it, all right? But their, their reasoning behind how they approach it is not the right reasoning. You know, they, and, and you'll get a lot of people that you work for for the first time in a clinic and that sort of stuff. They just want to please you. You know, and you're going, no, 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 no. Don't do that thing because I say so. Do that thing because it works. But how do you determine that it works? So it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. So when I work with a group like this, I end up with the lesson is, this is messed up. I'm getting paid to do this, but I'm getting way more out of this than they are getting out of it from me, from my perspective. You know what I'm saying? I do, because you're always learning as a coach. You always want to learn more. And that's so evident because um, my athletes that did talk to me about working with you over the weekend, they were all so happy with how you were coaching them. Not the same cues, for example, with every person and really seeing what works for so-and-so and that whole conceptual interference or paralysis through analysis that whole scenario a lot of athletes are used to being sort of overcoached because i think the coach wants to prove what they know and the athlete in turn is trying to prove that they can do it yeah yeah and yeah. there's that lost connection right exactly that you know i've said it how many times this weekend robert frost right we all sit in a circle and wonder while the damn thing sits in the middle and knows and that requires being detached and getting perspective and stepping back and being patient and allowing the process, you know? Yeah, Bob. and I, I had the rare occurrence to be able to actually coach you a little bit a couple hours ago. And I was just talking about something that I say a lot, which is rip the ground apart mm-hmm. and rip the floor apart. And it was interesting because your idea of ripping the ground apart, or in other words, getting your ankles out, was a little bit different than mine. So it's just that conversation. So there's a little bit of getting to know you and getting to know the athlete you're working with and then not trying to rush that process too much and then starting to build off of that, right? Yeah, Bobby, you've got this amazing sense of humility around you. And if I were to wager a guess, I would say that has a lot to do with the success that you have seen with athletes who have worked with you. For everyone listening, I hope that you can take that humility and apply it in your own lives. And real quick, Bobby, because our time is short, but what is in the future for you? I hope you're going to get to continue coaching and uh, maybe even write some more books. Yeah, definitely. Uh, um, you know, Matt and I and a lot of, of my other colleagues and friends, we're talking about the next generation of materials that we want to produce and, and then redoing some of the stuff. You know, the beautiful things about sports psychology is there's new role models to teach the old uh, techniques that really, really worked well and the, and the old me- methodologies. 
with my work at the moment with USA Triathlon, very gratified to have moved through a phase where, you know, culminated in a gold medal, first gold medal ever for the USA in, in triathlon, to now move back to uh, youth and junior development, you know, working with the 14, the 15, the 18 year olds. It's very gratifying seeing the, the, the bright eyed and bushy tail kids with Olympic dreams. Um, so, oh yeah, probably going to die before I'm done, which is really cool. Good because, for you. Yeah, I've yeah. got something to do, you know. Good for I, you. Was it Richard Bach who said, how do you know when, when your mission on earth is complete? If, if, you, if you're not dead, it isn't. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Well, best of luck to you, Bobby, and uh, I encourage you listening to check out Magical Running. If you're interested in more of Bobby's words of wisdom, you can find a lot of them in that book. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at pendolaproject at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Bobby McGee, it has been an absolute pleasure, and thank you for coming in and speaking with us and our listeners. Oh, blast spending time with you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Bobby.